Co-host, are you ready? Indeed I am. Guest, are you ready? I am ready. Very well. Let the podcast commence. Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple II. Whether you're a longtime user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Welcome, one and all, to Open Apple, episode number 28. It is the month of June 2013, and my co-host, Mike McGinnis, and I, Ken Gagney, are here to talk to you about the Apple II computer, the history, the applications, the modern community, the upcoming events, and the people who make up this remarkable aspect of technology's history. Hi, Mike. Hi, Ken, and you said a mouthful. I tend to do that more often than I should. Uh, moving right along. What's up with you this month, Mike? Not much. It's, uh, been kind of a busy month. How about for you? What's making it so busy? Well, we adopted a, a, a new little dog to go along with our old little dog. And he's, he's been great, but he's had, it turns out he's got some spine problems. Oh, I'm sorry. So, yeah, he's been in and out of the vets all month and running around trying to take care of that has been time consuming and not very cheap. I can imagine. Oh, yeah. poor little guy. Well, he's yeah. he's very fortunate to have you to take care of him. Uh, well, thank you. Yeah. How are you? I'm fine. As we record this on Saturday evening, I am 11 hours away from the mover showing up and taking all my stuff. Are they going to give it back? They should be leaving it at my new home, yes. Oh, well, that's good then. Yeah, I currently live three miles from Computer World magazine, which was my place of employment for six years until I quit back in January to start two new jobs in Boston. And those jobs currently take me about 90 minutes to get to each day, each way. And I actually enjoy the leisurely ride on the commuter rail. I find it relaxing. And it gives me some downtime that I probably otherwise would not schedule for myself. But it doesn't get me home till late at night. And for someone who has a lot of extracurricular commitments, it doesn't leave me a lot of time to do everything I want to. So I need to reclaim some of those hours and change up my commute so I'm moving to some place that will turn my commute from a 90-minute train ride to a 30-minute bike ride. That'll be handy. I think so, and also I will have much faster internet. Verizon Fios should be about 25 times faster than what I've had for the last two years. Ooh, now I'm jealous. Let's see if they can actually get it installed. The automated reminder from Verizon said it takes six to eight hours to install. Wow. Yeah, and they're supposed to show up anytime between 1 and 5 p.m., so that means if he shows up at 5 p.m., he could be there till 1 a.m. <laughs> I hope that's not the case. That would be both terrifying and comical. Although, if I had to wait till 1 a.m. for someone to install that for me, but it meant that I was getting rid of Comcast, I would happily let them stay <laughs> as late as they wanted. Yeah, I try to avoid all the different cable companies. In fact, I haven't had any TV service whatsoever since 99, but signing up for Verizon, they were having a special where it was actually cheaper for me to get the triple play bundle that has phone, internet, and TV than it is for me to get just the phone and the internet, which is what I would normally use. So I will have TV service for the first time in 14 years, but I have no intention of plugging it into my television or using it in any other way. That's what they all say. I There's just no time in my life for it. I would have to adjust something or give up something to make room for TV. The only thing that's on that I want to watch nowadays is actually debuting tomorrow as we record this, and that's season four of Arrested Development. Oh, yes. That's right. And that's not on TV. That's on Netflix. That is on Netflix. So I really don't need television service. Well, good luck sticking to that. Thanks. <laughs> However, speaking of new media to consume, I do want to take this opportunity to plug something entirely unrelated to Open Apple, and that is that I have launched a new podcast. Yay! 
I'd have thought you and Carrington were having too much fun with no quarter, so I wanted to get in on the action. Uh, always muscling in on my action. Well, you know, you set the precedent, then other people follow. You can't help it. I'm a groundbreaker. It's what happens when you're popular. Or something. Right. This new show is actually quite a change of pace for me. I am not the host. I am not a co-host. I am not the editor. I am not the producer. I'm just the publisher. I am hosting a website where my students are interviewing electronic publishing professionals or online publishing professionals. Those can be uh, bloggers, editors, YouTube video creators, podcasters, anything. And anyone who creates content for online, including ebook authors, and they record those interviews and submit them to me as MP3s as a homework assignment. And the best of the best, I am airing online at thepubcast.org, which is not to be confused with several other podcasts named The Pubcast, which are all about beer. Well, that would make sense. That my college students would be producing a show about beer? Yes. <laughs> They would probably agree with you wholeheartedly, but in this case, they came up with the name of the Pubcast because it's all about publishing. And we have aired, uh, we're airing one episode every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. And I encourage you all to check it out if you are interested in any of those aspects. It's timely, topical, relevant, and modern. Well, we wish you luck. Well, thank you. I don't really have much to do. I already have 12 episodes in the can. I'm just queuing them up. And we'll be having other batches of dozens of episodes submitted throughout the year and the podcast should never go dry hi this is bruce boxleitner and open apple fights for the users we are very honored to have with us this month on open apple a man who wears many many hats you may not have heard of him but after this episode you will and you'll wonder why you hadn't before please join me in welcoming mr lon sideman hi lon Hey, thanks for having me on the show. I am a longtime listener, first-time caller, I guess. Well, thank you for calling in. We appreciate you giving us your Saturday evening. Hey, my, my pleasure. My wife is downstairs with the baby, so I have, I have a couple hours here to goof around. Oh, my gosh. Baby, how old? Uh, two and a half weeks. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. It's a, it's a big life changer, but a great life changer. So we're, we're quite, it's been great. I take it it's your first, then? It is our first. Wow. For, for the whole family. So she's the center <laughs> of the universe right now. <laughs> so we have a lot of help. Wonderful. Now, in addition to fatherhood, I noticed on your LinkedIn profile that you have five different roles that say you presently hold those titles. So you do a lot of things. I do a lot of things, and I, I think it's a, a good time to do a lot of things because it's uh, you know we're we're in a an age where the technology has matured significantly to the point where back in our day when we first started using Apple computers, you know that we were unique in that you know people on BBSs were not you know, that, that common. And now everyone is essentially on a BBS with the internet. So, um, so in addition to uh, working at my family business, we're a glove and safety equipment importer. Uh, I started a uh, independent content uh, company that is helping uh, journalists who are finding themselves on hard times, uh, start their own publications. And we've been really, uh, you know, working to build that and build an advertising model around it. And all the other stuff I do kind of, you know, envelops that, you know, so I have a podcast that I do with Tim street called, uh, this, uh, what do we call the podcast? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm blanking already here. Behind the video. <laughs> I used to be This Week in Media, but we uh, Tim and I uh, started up uh, this on our own. And uh, we cover independent content creators and, and all the challenges that go into that. Things like the podcast here and, and video production and all that kind of stuff. So um, so everything I do has a has a relation to some degree or another. So does that mean you can give me some tips on how to make Juice GS better? 
Uh, well, you know, we only do uh, virtual publications, so all the online stuff. So we can help the podcast and maybe not the print publication. But I, I, you know, I let my subscription lapse, and I feel terribly guilty about that. So I'm going to need to renew that tonight after the show. Well, hey, we invite you on the show anyway. Thank you. <laughs> it's good marketing. <laughs> so that's what you do with your day job. But of course, that's not why you're on the show. You are a retro computing enthusiast. I am. And I, I was a you know little piece of history. I was the moderator of the FidoNet Apple II uh, Echo back in the day. Really? It, I was. for and Up until the point where my BBS stopped carrying the, the Echo and I disappeared. So if anyone ever wondered what happened to me, it was, it was the, uh, the, the hub that uh, received the Echo stopped uh, receiving it. And that was, that was the end of me. Um, but uh, yeah, I've always been a, a real eager Apple II person. My first computer was an Apple IIe. Um, actually, the first computer I ever really used was an Apple IIe. The first one was a Sinclair, but that didn't do much. Um, <laughs> but my, uh, I, I remember going into New York City with my father, and we, uh, he, he was starting a business, actually the glove business that we're in now at the time. And uh, we went out and spent a lot of money on an Apple IIe with the, the dual disk drive and 128K of RAM. And, and I spent a lot of time on that computer. His office was, was at the house. Uh, after he moved the office out, I got an Apple IIc, and then later uh, got a 2GS. And, and you know, it's... Uh, it's part of your childhood. And what happened was probably about seven or eight years ago, I was trying to archive all of the stuff that I had accumulated in my Apple II days so I didn't lose it because, you know, the, the floppy disks tend to expire after some time. And I found the CFFA, the original, yep. uh, and started, uh, I was in a little house at the time, so I was in my basement uh, for hours just archiving floppies onto the compact flashcard and just got into the community again because they're more of a lurker um, because there was so much out there. I was surprised by how much hardware and software and, and enthusiasm there still was around the Apple II, and I just kind of got addicted to it. So I've been been quietly following everybody and accumulating stuff. And uh, then, you know, of course, Watching the uh, the BBS documentary got me inspired to uh, do another little project, which I'm sure you'll ask me about. So, would that project have anything to do with the Raspberry Pi? It it does. So, um, what I did is, you know, there, I I had started after watching the BBS documentary. I got I was just so nostalgic for for the, the BBSs, and and it was really remarkable how quickly we all abandoned them after the internet kind of came into being, and. So I, I was uh, I started up a little Synchronet BBS. I found the the Fidonet um, node in my area is actually still around, believe it or not. So um, got hooked up on Fidonet, and it was cool. But you know what? Everybody had a Synchronet BBS, and I was thinking, you know, it'd be really cool to run a BBS on the real hardware. And there was a BBS, the Age of Reason, which was operating up until just a few, probably about last year, uh, which was running on an Apple IIe, and he had it set up through a you know a modem emulator, essentially, to get it connected to the internet. And then it disappeared, and I was really kind of bummed out by that because I kind of liked logging in to something like I used to log in when I was a kid. So um, I went out and bought a, a, a Platinum 2E and got another um, CFFA, bought a 3000. So I got, I got two 3000s, by the way, um, and uh, got that going and, and then spent the last, next better part of a year trying to figure out how to get the thing to work. I've never been a coder. I've been, an, I've been a power user, so I don't... I don't uh, Salt, you know, do any uh, salt soldering, and and I certainly don't do much coding. Um, I got too many things on, on my plate, um, but I was able to somehow get this thing to work with a with a Raspberry Pi, where the Pi is running um, a program called TCP Sir. 
Teaster, I don't know how to pronounce it, but uh, basically it, it has the Pi emulate a modem and we have it uh, connected to the super serial card with a USB to serial adapter. And somehow it works. I don't know how it works, but it works. <laughs> so you can reach it at uh, matrixreturns.dyndns.org on uh, port number 6401. We have a great uh, little community in there. What's been really exciting about this project is uh, all of the Apple II folks have started finding their way to it and have been really helping me. So we got a no-slot clock for it. Um, so we, ha- we actually have accurate time. Uh, so it'll boot you off if you've been on too long. Uh, and we've, uh, we're working now with uh, Scott Johnson. Uh, we're trying to upgrade it to version 3.0 of the Warp 6 BBS, which is the software that uh, the Apple is running. And we're running into some trouble. We have to troubleshoot some stuff uh, this weekend. We have a long weekend, so we're going to try to get that that process going as well. But it's been really fun, and, and the community is always helpful, and it's just, just fun to uh, try have a little project here that can um, kind of keep things going. And we're actually having some good discussions on the message boards and stuff. How have I not heard about this? I don't know. Why haven't you? <laughs> I don't know. This is the first I've heard about it. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, check it out. Log in, create a user account. We've got... Uh, Oh, I'm, I'm blogging in right now as you're speaking. And the fun thing is it only allows one person in at a time, which these days is kind of Old unheard school. of, right? <laughs> wow. I would imagine that would be necessary for something like Warp 6 because I ran a Warp 6 BBS back in the day. I wrote a door game for it. That It's one of those games where you log in, you're allowed 60 turns a day. You take your turns, you log off, somebody else logs in, gets their turn. Of course, it would require that only one person be online at a time because if everybody's moving around at the same time, the game's going to get all confused. It would certainly get confused, and I and I would imagine um, I I only have one super serial card in there, so <laughs> it's a it's a very linear process, I guess. But uh, yeah, it's it's cool, and 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 again, it pre- kind of brings this thing back because when when I uh, what I had done when I got this thing working is uh, on the Twit Network, the Ga- uh, Dick's Gadget Warehouse is a, a segment of uh, the Gizwiz podcast. And that's with Dick D. Bartolo and Leo Laporte. And I've been a fan of the Twit Network for quite some time. And they were asking people to submit uh, their own uh, gadget warehouse devices, you know, things that were old that they're still using. And uh, this was a perfect candidate for that. So uh, Leo and, and Dick tried to log in, except they announced it on in the middle of the live show. And obviously somebody else popped in before they had a chance to. And uh, uh, Leo got the message, just like the old days, only one caller at a time. <laughs> so they weren't even able to feature the show? Or the uh, they, feature your BBS? They they did feature it, but they weren't able to actually log in and see it work. But uh, uh, I did during my video um, submission to them. I did show you know show them how it how it works, so people did get to see the uh, the, the glorious black and white text display of of it. And I w- I should add that if you're going to log in, uh, I would use uh, um, a Sync Term, which is a open source uh, application. It's available for both uh, Mac and Windows. Uh, and the reason why is is that for some reason there's some odd echoing uh, coming back when you use like a regular Telnet client. So SyncTerm uh, is a is a really a BBS client. It's a great ANSI terminal emulator, uh, and it's cross-platform and it and it does a great job of uh, really bringing you back to those those days. And of course, you could probably try to Telnet in from your Apple with an Ethernet card or something too. I remember working with Scott Johnson when he was running the Apple Hideaway Warp Six BBS out in Iowa. How did you get hooked up with him? He found me. Um, I, I went on the uh, the Facebook group and I just posted the thing to say, "Hey, I'm I'm doing this, and uh, well, come on in." <laughs> and Scott was immediately there because he had uh, he had been really active in the Warp Six community back in the day, and I know he did some 
coding on it. He actually wrote a, an updater for me that uh, is upgrade, upgrades it automatically from uh, version 2.2 to 3.0. So we, we, we've gotten that process working. We're just having a, a little problem getting the modem component to, uh, to work properly. It's a very odd setup, and I think there's probably pinout issues or something. And it, it seems like something that was not right with 2.2 is actually making it work. <laughs> so we're trying to figure out what that is, but we'll, we'll get there. And, and Scott's great. His enthusiasm for this has been just infectious, and he's, he's really keeping me uh, interested in keeping it going. So it's been, it's been fun. That's fantastic. I just now, while we're recording this, realized that three months ago, President's Day made the 20th anniversary of the day I launched my BBS. Wow. Well, happy uh, anniversary to that. It's a, that's an accomplishment. How, when did you shut it down? How long was it running for? I shut it down in 97. Okay. That's about, that's a pretty, pretty much the end of the line for a lot of boards. So it was, uh, you know, it made sense. I think it just, you know, the internet just became so much more useful um, so quickly that you know, people went there and plus you didn't have the toll phone charges that you did with those BBSs back in the day. Well, as Jason, as Jason Scott says in the BBS documentary, not only was that the era in which the internet was becoming more accessible, but it's also the age at which a lot of sysops went to college and left their computers. <laughs> that's right. True. I was one of them. <laughs> and that's what happened to me too. Yeah. Now, when I first started, I, I was running AppleNet. Um, I don't know if you ever had any experience with that. I haven't. Uh, uh, this and there was there's been different versions of it. This one was the version that was written in BASIC. I think there was another one that was that was uh, using some other system, um, and it was on a floppy disk. And I I managed to find that one, and that one I ran when I was in junior high school. So you can imagine what the uh, the message board was like. Uh, but the cool thing was is I was able to image the disk. It was still alive, and I was able to um, I think I was using XGS or something, and I managed to connect the XGS emulator to a Telnet port and Telneted into my old BBS and had my last call is like 1991. It was pretty cool to see that, but um, it wasn't functioning with the Pi properly. And, and some of those discussions on the message board were a little prepubescent. So I figured I would uh, start over. <laughs> my BBS lasted about three days. <laughs> That's it. What, what happened there? Well, that was, uh, that was my dad. Um, when my dad realized that uh, he was not going to have use of his phone line anymore, he put an end to that. Oh, that'll do it. Yeah. Yes. I, I had, I, we had an extra phone line in the house. My mother had, had tried to start a business at one point and never got things off the ground. So she had the phone line and we had just kept it because it was nice to have two lines. And I just, uh, just kind of annexed it one day, said, Mom, I'm moving my computer down into your, into your office room. And, uh, that's where the BBS is going to be. And yeah, it kept me out of her hair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My, my dad said, um, you can have a second line if you pay for it. And, uh, so that was as far as it went. <laughs> that was the end of that. What was amazing was how much people spent on these things. You know, the, the, the guy that was upstream for me on FidoNet when I got my, and this is back when I decommissioned the, the Apple II BBS and moved to a, to a Maximus system on a 386. Um, it was a local call for me, but my, my, uh, hub, he was spending a couple hundred dollars a month, uh, moving Echo Mail around. You know, this was a pretty sizable investment that a lot of these hobbyists made to, to really keep this network going. It was impressive. And this was in Connecticut? Yeah, this was in Connecticut. We had some of the worst local phone um, areas in the world. So I could call like, you know, 10 miles away and then we had a, a crew uh, charges. So there was probably four or five boards within my local calling range. Um, one was on a uh, runoff a Tandy Coco computer, if you remember those. Um, Color Computer 3, I think they were running. They had a 10 meg hard drive on it too. It was a monster. Um, and then uh, the rest of us were running Maximus. You weren't on BBS the documentary, were you? No, I wasn't. But that that was what got me inspired to try to set this thing up because I, I watched that entire thing over like a rainy weekend, and uh, it just brought back memories, you know. So I was I was eager to try to get something to work. The Raspberry Pi project you're working on now that was not your first time on the Twit Network. 
No, actually, I was on there as well because I I had um. So after I got my 2GS up to up to par, now what's funny is, is I, I have the same 2GS I had when I was a kid, and it sat in a plastic bin in my mother's basement for quite a while. And then when the, the uh, CFFA came out, that got me got me going again. So it had had a probably a eight year sleep at least. Um, and uh, what I did is I I figured you know what now I got the CFFA in here I can cheaply add mass storage. Let's make this 2GS like the best like exactly how I wanted it to be when I was in junior high school. So. Um, I got a, uh, you know, the CFFA got a big, nice compact flash card in there. So it immediately had a hard drive. Uh, then I, this was before things on eBay got really out of control. So I bought a, uh, four, I think a four or six meg, uh, memory expansion card for it. Uh, found an Ethernet card. Um, I got in on one of the, um, one of the batches they were making. And then I found a Transwarp GS that was hacked to like 12 megahertz. So that's oh in there. And so this thing is like, uh, it's, it's humming <laughs> and it's really cool because it's just, you know, I, I just always wanted to get all this stuff. I used to read insider magazine and would, would lust after all the, all the, um, applied engineering hardware and just, you know, you, you have to choose, you know, what do you, what, what's more important, a modem or a hard drive, right? Um, cause this stuff was not cheap. So, you know, I had opted for the modem and, and I'm glad I did cause that really got me into uh, really a lot of the things that I'm doing now as an adult. Um, you know, communicating online is just such an amazing thing. And it was even more amazing then because there was so much discovery about it. Um, and then I, I had made the decision to get the PC transporter, and I still have that, uh, because all of the BBSs I was calling were ANSI enabled, and I didn't have really good ANSI graphics on the native two side. So I was using uh, my Apple 2GS as a, as a IBM XT, essentially. So I was using that quite a bit. But um, but now this thing is like totally souped up. So on the Twit Network, I did a little overview of how this thing worked, and I kind of showed what I what I had done to archive all of my old schoolwork and everything else, and uh, and then telneted into um, I believe the, uh, uh, the the Apple II IRC chat room that I know you guys are active in. So um, it was uh, the A2 Central chat. Um, so it was cool to be able to to show that and let people know that. The Apple twos are still out there, and if you've got one, you know, take it up, take it out of the the dustbin there, and get it get it back up and running, and archive those floppies because you're you're probably not going to have that data much longer. When you were on the show for your BBS project, did they remember that you'd been on the show previously? Yeah, yeah, and actually, I ran into Leo. I was at New Media Expo in Las Vegas, and I went up and I uh, got to meet Leo, and he remembered it and was really really impressed with it. So it was it was fun. Uh, Dick D. Bartolo uh, sent me a, an autograph Mad magazine for my appearance too, so that was that was cool. What's his connection with Mad Magazine? Uh, he is Mad's maddest writer. That's his. Uh, that's his byline. Um, so he's been a writer for Mad Magazine since the beginning, or early since early on in its uh, inception, and he still uh, writes for them to this day. Huh. I think I may actually have known that, and seeing him in the Twit context just didn't make the connection for me. But I used to read Mad Magazine all the time in the eighties and nineties. And what's funny is I never drew that connection either. In fact, I remembered him from, um, again, I tell you, I'm like going back to my childhood here. Um, from, he, he used to show up on like some of these Nickelodeon, um, variety shows where he would do like the gadgets. You know, he was always doing gadget stuff on the side. And that's been kind of a side thing for him. And, and I, and Leo met him back along the way. And, uh, they used to have a daily, they used to do this podcast daily. You know, they do, they record like five in a row and then, uh, release them once a week. And my favorite episodes have always been his gadget warehouse. He, he literally has a gadget warehouse in New York city, which is filled with old stuff. <laughs> and, and he used to pick an item out of it every, every Friday to talk about it. It was uh, it's a cool podcast. So you have the two GS, you have the platinum two E running the BBS, any other retro computers? Yeah, I've got, well, I have the Apple two C. Um, and that was, that one that's beat up. Um, it, it's had a long life, and it was it was 
that was you know dragged all over the place. So um, I think it might still work, but I haven't booted it up in a while. And then the the Platinum 2E that started it all I have as well, except um, that ended up in Mom's garage, and I think the cold weather off and on over the course of 20 years did a number on it. So it's not bootable at the moment, but uh, maybe some of the Apple II geniuses can help me get that working again. And then on the other thing I've been doing, um, I, you know, this, I'm getting a little obsessed with some of this retro stuff. So I, I, that got me like getting involved with uh, getting my old game consoles out of the basement. My mother's been ecstatic because I moved out of her house almost 15 years ago and I still have stuff at her house. Um, so I, I got all my old game consoles hooked up to a CRT television. I bought some of those uh, flash cartridges that you know allow you to keep all your games in one cartridge. So um, I've got uh, about seven or eight game systems now that I've kind of gotten back up and running again too. So my, my daughter is going to be either a real like geek like me, or she's going to avoid all of it. We'll see what happens when she gets a little bit older. I suspect it'll be the former. Yeah. Let's see. <laughs> now I used to have five game systems hooked up and then I moved a couple of years ago and I brought it down to two, but so there are so many old classic games that you can now download in new formats such as for ios or for steam or anything it almost obviates the need to have the original hardware hooked up anymore you know to some degree it does and you know what's funny though and and i think you can appreciate this as an apple II enthusiast there's something about running it on the real hardware as it was meant to be you know you don't have all those you maybe the coloring something the color gets off a little bit or maybe it, it runs just a little bit too fast um, but when you run it on the real hardware it's really how it was and it's really kind of neat to to boot up a, a single cartridge on my NES and, and on a television and, and have it have it work that way, especially because you can use the zapper again. Right. <laughs> so that that alone makes it worth the price of admission, I think. But yeah, you know, the Apple IIe keyboard is so much different from a MacBook Pro keyboard that whether or not using the emulator, it just doesn't feel the same. Yeah, those Apple II keyboards were just awesome. Um, love that the sound they made, and uh, yeah, the, the the you know the keyboard, the Mac keyboards look nice, but they they're a little too squishy. Right. You don't get the same sense of feedback. No, I need some clicking. Right, exactly. So any other Apple II projects you're working on? Or is the Warp no, 6 and the VBS enough? That's the one for now. We'll see what uh, we'll see what comes out next. I'm, I'm actually, you know, I, I've kind of wanted to learn a little bit of basic again. And I, and I, and I do um, some, some database programming, which is similar. I'm believing I'm still using Fox Pro. That's a long story. Um, but uh, I, I may try to get into a little bit, you know, basic programming. I think what I'm going to do with my daughter when she's a little bit older, um, I got my start using um, Logo, which I'm sure you all remember, the turtle and the logo and the, all the little commands you could type in. And it was a great way of, of learning how computers operate and the logic behind them. And I, I think uh, when she gets a little bit older, I might actually set the Apple II up with her, the, probably the 2GS, uh, mainly because it, it can't get online very easily, and I don't have to worry about her, you know, wandering into uh, the seedier parts of the internet. And uh, she can learn how to program, and and I think an Apple II is a great place to start. So, um, what better way for her to start than on the computer that I started on? That's the next project. <laughs> Lon, what was your uh, BBS handle? You know what? It's funny. I was one of these real jerks that required everyone to use their real name. Oh. Um, <laughs> so. I would never, never have called your board back. <laughs> um, yeah, I was I, I was a little bit of an authoritarian sometimes, but not all the time, but maybe a little too much. But uh, now I don't care. Uh, but if I did, ha if there was a handle, and it's funny, my um, my my cousin had had two cats. He had a cat named Buka, and a cat named Nishka. And so his his online handle, he he lived in Chicago, uh, was was Buka, and I I adopted his his cat's name, and I called myself Mean Nishka. That was my. That was my handle. So if you ever see me playing on the Xbox, that's my that's my name on there. How do you spell that? Uh, M uh, mean has an angry, and then N I S H K A Nishka. Okay, you'll be getting a friend request from Game Bits. 
Excellent. Let's uh, let's play some games when the baby's sleeping. <laughs> Get what's new and exciting in retro computing with two news. Another Apple One has gone up for auction, and it sold this morning for $671,000. Holy crap. And it's been all over the mainstream media. The New York Times has a big article on the rising prices of the Apple Ones in general and sort of where that came from. It's kind of neat because uh, our friend Mike Willigal was quoted in there uh, talking about the Apple One. But what, what was interesting to me and what, what I don't see getting a lot of press here is the other items that were also for sale as part of this lot. There was a, a Lisa One, an Apple Three, an original Apple Two, and a whole bunch of other non Apple-related vintage technology that just look really cool. And we'll have a link in the show notes uh, about it. If you go to, there's a liveauctioneers.com page that'll show you everything that was for sale and how much it went for. For those of you who attended Kansas Fest last year, you may remember that the winning HackFest entry was a Curta simulator. Three of those Curta calculators sold as part of this, this vintage technology auction. I thought that was pretty cool. A couple of the Apple items didn't sell, though. It doesn't look like there was a Lisa 1 that sold. The Lisa 2.5 did not sell. The Apple 3 did not sell. There was a MITS Altair 8800 that sold, but the MSI 8080 did not sell. So I'm not sure I'm not sure what the difference was there and why people thought some things were valuable and some weren't. But uh, you can take a look at everything that they sold. Was this a record for Apple 1s at auctions? It is, yeah. And what made this one so much more valuable? I have no idea. I, I see there was a Waz signature on it, so that may have added a little bit, right? Yeah, I think so. Waz, Waz will sign anything that you put in front of him, so that may not have been that hard to obtain. Hmm. But with there being so few working Apple Ones out in the world, even fewer probably have the Waz signature. Sure, but the one that sold a couple of months ago, this is by the same auction house in Germany, uh, Brecker, Team Brecker. That sold for 640000 um, was more complete. It had more stuff, uh, more period-accurate pieces with it. So You could buy a lot of other Apple IIs for that amount. <laughs> you certainly could. You will need to register for a free account at Live Auctioneers if you want to see the, the sale prices on these. Or you can just listen to this podcast. <laughs> or you can listen to this podcast. You can get that, get that second mortgage going. Lon, do what, to what do you attribute all these amazingly, ridiculously high prices that we've been seeing in auctions? I mean, Apple Ones are popping up at Christie's, at Sotheby's, two to three times a year now, and they're going for more and more, and we're nearing a million dollars. Why is that, and where will it end? There's clearly some demand for them, and I, I think as and, – and you know what? I, I think if you look at the – people are sitting on these things and seeing these huge prices. I think they're seeing some motivation for getting rid of them now, especially while Apple's still hot, you know, if, if – uh, Apple falters along the way, maybe they may not be worth as much. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of vintage computers out there that were offered around the same time that, you know, just the company never got off the ground and it wasn't the start of something. And, and I think that's probably what's driving it. But, but wow, I, as much as I'd love to have an Apple one, I don't, I don't think I would even consider paying that much money, even if I had that much to spend. <laughs> you bring up a good point. I've never seen a Commodore 64, a Trash 80 or anything else going at these auctions and making the kinds of headlines that the Apple one does. Yeah, I think it's that Steve Jobs thing too, where it's, you know, there's that aura of the artist. You know, if you look at any great artist who passes away, their, their art becomes infinitely more valuable after, after they're, they're deceased. And I, I think this is 
one of those examples of you know a, a piece of hardware that was most likely handled directly by Steve Jobs and Wozniak at the early days in that garage and you know, if you're a, a big time collector with money to burn, then, you know, go for it. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure they'll increase in value too, as time goes on. You know, I think it's, it might be directly tied to Apple success in the future too, but, um, but Hey, all the power to them. I, I just wish I had one. Steve Jobs passed away. That's true. But so did Jack Trammell, the founder of Commodore International. So why aren't we seeing Commodores going at auctions? Probably because there's so many of them. <laughs> that's true. It did outsell the Apple too. Yeah, and there wasn't like a first, you know, rare machine because even I mean the Apple II's now are selling quite a for a pretty high price, but they're not six hundred thousand dollars, right? I mean, you know, I think the the fact that there's so few working Apple ones out there is probably you know driving the scarcity and and this demand. And also, Commodore is not exactly the company today that Apple is. Certainly not. I'd imagine the days of stumbling over one of these things at a garage sale because somebody didn't know who it was are probably long over. Well, it's not going to stop me from going to every yard sale I can find. Yeah, you never know when you might find another one. That's right. I remember reading articles on CSA2 and on the Facebook group just in the past year about people going to Goodwill and Salvation Army. And they're, it's a lot lot rarer than it used to be, but they're still finding stuff out there. There was one guy, he had his iPhone with him, and he wanted to plug it into the audio port on the Apple II and download some software to it to see if it would work. And they wouldn't let him. So he's like, fine, here's $5. I'll just buy it and bring it home. I think a lot of people don't realize the value of some of these things. The eBay people certainly do, unfortunately, but the, uh, <laughs> uh, the, uh, you know, the tag sales and, you know, there's that computer sitting in the garage, like my, my mom's place. And thankfully she hasn't <laughs> tossed all my stuff out yet. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, there's, there's certainly a lot of stuff out there that I, I think uh, needs to get found by people who will appreciate it. And that stuff is remarkably resilient. Just like your Apple II sat in your mom's garage, my Apple II GS that ran my BBS sat in my parents' basement for 11 years before I dusted it off back in 08, brought it to my office at the time, plugged it in, and it worked just fine. Well, it's funny. My, my cousin in Chicago, when, when I went out there for a wedding, thir- I kid you not, probably 1982 or three or something, and he had given me a bunch of discs for the computer to play when I got home, and th- they still boot. You know, he's, I mean, it's amazing. It's just, I, I, I had to take a video of it. I actually showed him the disc. He's, you know, it was his handwriting. And I, I just did a quick boot up and he, he lives in Japan right now. Uh, emailed it to him. I said, is this incredible or is this incredible? Um, it was, it was just so cool that these things still work, but you really got to back them up now. Cause it's uh, a bunch of them don't work too. So yeah, you can't count on these things being around forever. So, you know, play with the originals when you can, but don't count on it being there tomorrow. Exactly. That's exactly what happened with Jordan Mechner, who last year pulled out his Apple II floppy disks with the Prince of Persia source code. And by pull out, I actually mean discovered. He thought that they were a long loss. He had been looking for them when he rebooted the Prince of Persia series for modern game systems. And then they finally found the original disks, I think, in his father's closet or something. And Tony Diaz and Jason Scott helped him recover that source code, which he then published online. So it's an open source program now, the original Prince of Persia. It is not freeware or shareware. He still owns the copyright on it, but he did open source it. And now there's a new chapter of that story. You want to tell us about that, Mike? Why, I'd love to, Ken. A programmer named Adam Green sat down and went through every line of code and documented the source code and did one better than that, came up with a series of steps where you can now build your own disk image, fully compiled Prince of Persia for the Apple II. Now, these comments, does it also help you hack Prince of Persia to give yourself infinite health or make doors open by clicking on them or anything? I imagine it would. 
Because I think there was another CSA2 user who has already produced such hacks, and I don't know if he actually documented it or commented it like this gentleman has. What a great way to learn, though. It would have been awesome if, uh, if, if something like this was available back when, when the Apple II was still you know, a mass-market device to, to learn how to put the software together. Of course, it probably would have helped people learn how to pirate <laughs> the software faster, too. But, um, but what, a, what a neat way to learn how a, how a game gets put together. This is, is going to be a real treasure for a lot of kids that are getting into this. Well, back in the old day, the closest thing we had was typing in the source code yourself from a magazine. Yeah, I remember doing that. <laughs> and I remember getting disappointed when I, I had something wrong somewhere and I couldn't find it. It's because you would have to go over every single line of code. And there was a rare occasion when it wasn't your fault. It was wrong in the magazine. Exactly. And you spent hours trying to figure it out. And, uh, and you know, you only had a, a few, you know, only a, a precious few few hours between homework and bedtime, you know? Right. And hopefully you also had a cassette drive or floppy drive or something to save it. Otherwise, you'd have to type it all in again. Yeah, exactly. It was a traumatic thing. <laughs> well, I'm glad that we don't have to do that with Prince of Persia. That would be a bear to type in. Were you a fan of the original game, Lon? Oh, yeah, definitely. I, I, you know, it's funny. I didn't get into Prince of Persia until later. So I think I first played it on the Mac. You know, it, it was an amazing thing to see. And then I, I think I got into the Apple II version later, and it was just amazing to see what he was able to accomplish with it. His journal that he published, I don't know if you saw that ebook um, that he, he made, but he he took his notes and his journals from... Uh, I think the time between Karataka or Karatika and Prince of Persia, and it was really fascinating to read just his experience coding this thing, which was an off and on activity for him, but also just how the business worked back then of software. It was a really, it's a neat read. It's, it's a, I think it's like a $5 ebook out there. Yeah, we just reviewed it in the March issue of Juice GS, and it was also included in the recent story bundle that you could buy online. Oh, well, then I should have renewed my subscription earlier. <laughs> <laughs> it would have told you what you already knew, which is that it's a great book. Yeah, I really enjoyed reading it. Yeah. A story bundle was an online package of 10 ebooks where you could name your own price and you get all 10 books. And the making of Prince of Persia and Karateka were among those ebooks. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, and they did a really nice update for the Xbox Live system. I think it's called Prince of Persia Classic, but it has newer modern graphics. All the same levels and everything, though. And the iOS version has been pretty fun. I've been playing that one as well. And Karateka is now out for iOS as well, iOS and Android. It is. And let me tell you something. I, first of all, I grew up always calling it Karataka. Me too. I, I, it wasn't set straight until I think Jordan Mechner finally set pronunciation correctly just, just recently. It's funny. Um, I decided because it was in the show notes, I, I went ahead and, and uh, invested a considerable amount of money to acquire Kar Karatika Classic for iOS this morning. And that destroyed my morning because <laughs> I played that game just like I used to. Um, what a great port. It's uh, it's emulated, so it's the, it's running the original Apple II version, and uh, the controls are excellent. Um, what a great game for a touch control, because I, I think one of the things that really made Karatika a great game was that the controls worked within the limitations of the hardware, because it wasn't a very fast game, right? It was it wasn't a, a Twitch game. It was really something where you had to think about each each move that you were going to to uh, plant on your opponents there, and then of course you had the bird. Um, <laughs> punch the hawk. Always punch the hawk. Punch the hawk. See, that's my mistake. I kept kicking the hawk this morning. And he, he did a number on me, but um, I, I forgot how to, how to deal with it. But uh, it's really well, well ported. You have some options, too, so you can have the scan lines on there like the old CRT displays. Uh, you can run it in, in the amber green. You know, That's how I played my games back in the day because I didn't have the color monitor. And there's also an amber version, too. So you have the green and the amber, if you wish. I, I guess amber is more the Hercules on the PC side, but somebody must have had an amber monitor somewhere. 
and it's great. Sounds great. It has the uh, the disc drive sound, so it it really brings you back to those to those days, and and it controls uh, surprisingly well considering how frustrating some of these joystick games or keyboard games can be on a on a touchscreen. And incidentally, I I just remembered this also. My the guy that officiated my wedding, who was a rabbi by the way, who officiated my wedding, ported Karatika to the eight bit Atari back in the day. <laughs> Isn't that hysterical? Same guy. Is that Same guy. Is that why you chose him to marry you? I, you know, it, 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 it would have been the deal maker for sure if I had known, but he had told me after the fact and I forgot what the whole set of circumstances was, but I think I had posted something on my Facebook and he, uh, he said, Oh, you know, I ported that to Atari back in the day. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's all, that's so awesome. So that is a, a good one. omen. It is. So my marriage is, it will be built to last. <laughs> and my, my wife is actually a black belt, um, in karate. So <laughs> seriously? Yeah, she is. She just, uh, right before, um, she got pregnant, she, uh, got her black belt. Congratulations. And I do not ever cross her. <laughs> what does she think of Karateka? Well, she was, um, staring at me when the baby needed the diaper changed and I was playing Karateka. And at which point I paused Karateka because it has a pause button and you can, uh, deal with that. Um, so it, it is built for adults. Um, the one thing I, I will say, and, and they, they did something a little different with this, this port. So the game is the same, but what they did is they added a rewind feature because as you know, they're, um, especially when you got inside the, uh, the building in, in the game, the second stage, um, there was a couple of areas where you can get, killed very quickly one would be the not to give away spoilers um the gate that crashes down in your head mm -hmm. and then of course you have your your princess uh, that you're trying to rescue will kill you if you do not run into her arms and uh you know it was kind of a bummer when you, you got you know far ahead in the game and then get killed in such a cheap manner so the ios port has a rewind function so once you get inside the building and you get killed you can rewind to your last victory and, and not have to start over from scratch which uh you know, I mean, I guess it, it's a new day and age and games are a little bit easier now, at least as far as getting you through the story. You know, to really experience the game, you should not hit the rewind button. But that only works once you get into the building? Yeah. So if you get killed before you get in the building, it, you can't rewind. But after you get in there, it puts up a little message and you just swipe to the left. And it, and it does a pretty cool thing. It actually re, replays like in, in a fast forward or fast rewind, like you're on a VCR. Um, every move you made right you know, up until the... Um, the time you got killed, and then it rewinds back to your last victory, and you can try again. Now, see, that wasn't working for me. I kept swiping to the left, and it wasn't rewinding, and now I find out that's because I never made it into the building. Wow, you're pretty rusty. <laughs> I was playing on the subway. I was distracted. Okay. It was bumping around a little that's bit. That's right. The good thing, you know, what's funny about Karatika is that once you beat it, you could always beat it. You know, it was, it was one of those games where it, it, you really built up some muscle memory on it. And it's funny, I'll, I'll come back and play it like, you know, decades later and it's still, it's still fresh in my mind. It, in fact, I remember when I got my power book back in 94, um, there was an Apple emulator for that. And that, and I played that incessantly once again at, during that period of time too. So it's a, it's a game that will be with me forever, I think. Now, did you flip the, the virtual disc over? You know, I, I don't, I didn't try that yet. I should, I should go back and they must, that's got to be in there somehow. I didn't see a setting for it, but maybe there's a Easter egg or something. I assume that you can just lock the orientation of your iPad and just play it upside down. So, so the Easter egg is in there and it's sensitive to the orientation. So you don't have to lock it if you flip it over. Uh, if you, if you lock it and flip it over, the, the controls will be upside down. But if you just flip it over, the screen will flip over, but the controls will be the right way. So it's like you're playing the backside of the disc. Oh, you're right. I'm playing it right now. That's interesting. So, yeah, the controls. Wow. Oh, just off the cliff. Never mind.
there was all sorts of those little moments in that game too. It's like when you first you know climb up the cliff and and there's that guy sitting there waiting to beat you up. If you bow to him, he'll bow back. And you can just do the infinite bowing. Oh, oh really? You can keep going forever. That that's half the time that I was on the subway. I just kept bowing, waiting for him to finally say, "Okay, I'm sick of this. I'm going to beat the crap out of you now." He's like, "No, he was very very polite." You know, there's a lot of a lot of honor amongst these uh, these these martial artists. They must be Klingons. Yes. If you run up to them without getting in a stance, he will kick you once and you will die. He's not that, <laughs> he's not that nice. <laughs> so he does have his limits. And that is my most common cause of death, actually. is just I am running too quickly and I can't get out of running mode fast enough. Let's see. It looks like we got another game that just came out for iOS and for Android, that being Boulder Dash or Boulder Dash XL. This is not a game that I'd ever played on the Apple II, so I can't really talk that much about how this resembles the original, but... The iOS version was released back in January, and it just came out for Android. So if that was a game that you played and enjoyed on your original Apple II, or I think it was also on the Atari and Commodore and some other platforms, but it's now available for your iOS or Android device. I remember two years ago, I showed you the Xbox Live version, and I said, Hey, Mike, they just came out with Boulder Dash for Xbox. And you're like, Boulder what? <laughs> and actually, I had never played it as a kid either, but I remember drooling over the pictures because I think there was an advertisement on the inside back cover of Mad Magazine. I was not allowed to read Mad Magazine. Well, what were you reading, Cracked? Yeah, cra- uh, Mad-, Mad Magazine's lamer, unfunny little brother, Cracked Magazine. Oh, I'm sorry. Mad was too ribald for my parents. This is funny to hear that you neither one of you played that game, because I hadn't played it either. Um, I, <laughs> I, went, I went up and, and looked at on YouTube, and somebody had done a little walkthrough on the Apple II version. So, uh, so I was like, oh, I, you know, I did, never saw that game. And I think, you know, it's funny, back then, software was so different, right? It wasn't, you know, it probably did better in some regions than others. And, uh, and it all was a matter of distribution and where you bought your software from, because I, I ne- never remember seeing that one out in the store. I would look at the pictures in Mad Magazine, which is also where I was looking at the pictures for Spy vs. Spy, which at the time that I was looking at those ads, it was not available for the Apple II. And I actually wrote Mad Magazine a letter saying, why won't you release it for my platform? And they wrote back explaining why. And then they released it for the Apple II. So maybe you inspired them. I hope so. It may have been the you know implied threats in my letter as well. Well, my favorite game, on, by the way, on the Apple II uh, back in that period of time, like the late 80s, was uh, Wings of Fury. Uh-huh. Love that game. I don't know if you ever, did you ever play that one. It was a Broderbund title. I think I have a copy of it. Uh, the Apple II GS that ran my BBS was a used system that I bought the entire uh, inventory off the guy, and I think it came with that game. Oh no, kidding! It was it was a you know an airplane game. It was like you were a single fighter against uh, the Japanese military, and you had uh, to to bomb islands, and they'd send fighter planes after you. And it was a really it's an awesome game, and uh, I spent hours and hours on that one. Uh, there is a uh, there is no iOS version of it, and I was hoping they would port it and make some new version of it, but I haven't seen it yet. Um, but there is a, a a clone called Wings of Fury for two ninety nine. So if you were a fan of Wings of I'm sorry, Wings of Glory is the title of the remake. Um, so if you're a fan of Wings of Fury, Wings of Glory is uh, a neat little uh, alternative. Yeah, I thought I remember that coming out for iOS. I- I was surprised when you said it wasn't available for iOS. I'm like, oh, they just renamed it. So, right. Yeah, it was some 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 guy really, you know, just loved the game so much he made his own version of it. So it's uh, it's it's a good alternative. Not 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 the same as the original, but close. Just like how there were a ton of Load Runner clones for iOS before there was Load Runner for iOS. Right. Exactly. All the all the uh, the fan appreciation projects. <laughs> That's a nice way of putting it. And let's see some more gaming news. Minecraft. 
I've never played Minecraft. Obviously, it's very big with Darren Crawford and Steve Weirich, who have their own Apple II mods and hacks and models, and now Brendan Roberts as well. Yeah, so Darren Crawford has a, a webpage, apple2forever.ca, and he has installed a, a Minecraft server into that so that you can go in and play around with that. And Brendan Robert has actually come up with a couple of really neat uh, mods where you can go into the Apple II that that Darren has built in there and run AppleSoft, and you can run Infocom Z Interpreter games. Wow, you can actually run AppleSoft within Minecraft? Yes, you can. I, I knew you could build some complex stuff in Minecraft, and I think I've even seen some functional stuff as opposed to decorative, like a, a castle or whatever. But I didn't realize it was complex enough to allow Infocom Z interpreters. How does that even work? I have no idea. I've never played Minecraft. It's it's not really uh, something I've been interested in, but it looks like he's got it working. That's amazing. Now, I understand that there are also various NPCs in this Minecraft server who may or may not be named after Apple II individuals. Oh, really? Yeah, apparently Dr. Steve Wyrick was wandering around this Apple II server and he found Ken Gagne and Mike McGinnis. And it wasn't until they refused to interact with him that he realized that, oh, these aren't PCs, these are NPCs, because obviously Ken and Mike would be chattier like they are on their podcast. If you bump into somebody in Minecraft on Darren Crawford's server and uh, you think it's somebody that you know, you might want to take a second look because it might just be another artifact of the Minecraft game itself. Or at some point in your life, you'll be downloaded into it. Right. Oh, dear. By the way, that game I was just talking about with Wings of Fury, it's, Wing, it's Wings of Valor is the, is the one I was referring to on the iOS platform, not, not the other Wings of something I said. <laughs> so. so you basically got every version of that game's name wrong. I, I, yeah, everything's all screwed <laughs> up. So let's look for, look for Wings, of, Wings of Valor on the iPhone. You'll, you'll get a nice, uh, a nice appreciated, uh, appreciative uh, port of an old game that we all loved. Wonderful. Lon, you've talked a lot about the classic games that you loved in the 80s. What sort of games do you play nowadays? Or have you basically just stopped playing games in 93 and you're still playing all the old school stuff? You know, you're funny how your priorities in life change. So it's hard to get in. I have a hard time getting into these games that require a lot of commitment. But I have been um, in, in moments when I have a free moment. The new XCOM game, uh, uh-huh. which is a remake of it. Yeah, uh, yeah, the it's the I think that's what they call it. Yeah, it's the um whatever whatever just came out from Two K Games. It is awesome. It's uh, a remake of the classic DOS XCOM, which was uh which was almost got a friend of mine thrown out of college actually because he preferred playing XCOM to going to class. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, we all knew people like that. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. It's uh, it's a great remake. They they actually balance the difficulty to an extent where it's actually playable, in my opinion. <laughs> so um, that one's been a lot of fun. It's on uh, it's on the uh, Xbox, PlayStation, and PC, and it's actually coming to iOS, and it will be a full blown port of those uh, higher end versions. So it should be exciting. I just don't know if I want to start over again on another platform, but uh, it's definitely one to look for. And what platform are you playing that on? Uh, Xbox right now. So and the problem with these games is that you get so invested in them, like especially XCOM, because you got to build up your your army and all this other stuff, and you spend a lot of time, you know, grinding away, and you hate to like start over just because it's on the preferred platform now. So, um, so I boot up my Xbox every once in a while when, when nobody's around and uh, get a, get a few rounds in. Um, we have a item on this list that was sent to us by a, a listener, uh, Neville Ridley Smith. Thank you. And this is actually something from back in December that I think I saw happen at the time, but I didn't comment on it on the show. 
Uh, this is a tweet from John Carmack, not to be confused with John Romero, who was the Kansas Fest 2012 keynote speaker, but rather his partner in crime and co-founder of id, John Carmack. He tweeted a picture on Christmas Day 2012 saying, my wife got me an Apple IIc for Christmas, and he has a picture of the IIc booted up. There are a bunch of five and a quarter inch floppy disks. The monitor is running ADT Pro, so he's probably zapping some stuff over onto those floppy disks so he can film up with fun content. And this is a pretty cool demonstration of a celebrity, a modern celebrity, using the classic computer for which he was famous because John Carmack and John Romero, I believe, met at SoftDisk in Shreveport, Louisiana. It looks like it's in great condition, too. Yeah, I wonder where she got that and if she did any sort of retrobriting or anything to clean it up. And there's a there was a Flickr album out there. This is from a couple of years ago from the, this guy that had gotten the Apple IIc completely brand new and opened it. Dan Budiak, I think, was the name. Yes, he was the cover story on Juice GS when that happened. That was amazing. That was a really fun uh, slideshow to watch. And as as bad as it was that he opened it, because I'm sure it immediately decreased the value of that that IIc. It was just so neat to see that machine as it was when it first came out of the box, which is always an exciting time. You say how bad it was that he opened it, but wouldn't you have done the same thing? Uh, probably, <laughs> unless it was an Apple One that was worth six hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Well, you're not going to find one of those in the box anymore. No, there wasn't. There probably wasn't a box. Was I there? doubt it. Although they had to like ship it, right? Yeah, I mean, how did they ship those things? They had to have handled them somewhere. Yeah, it probably went in a just a brown box somewhere. Yeah, I mean, even if they weren't bringing them to the post office to mail them, I think they were just driving them around to stores. But they wouldn't just let them sit on the floor of their minivan or whatever. That's true. Huh. So I wonder if there was an Apple One box out there somewhere. Yeah, this uh, photo that John Carmack tweeted got 179 favorites, 321 retweets, and that's from his 87,000 followers. Wow. And he's still added software, of course. He's doing Wolfenstein, Doom, Quake, Rage, a bunch of other stuff. He is uh, a big guy. And speaking of which, there's another Apple II celebrity from back in the day who I want to mention. If I were to ask you what is your favorite multiplayer Apple II GS game, what would your answer be? What about you, Lon? Anything? Multiplayer. Simultaneous multiplayer Apple II GS game. Uh, was it ever released or was it? I'm thinking like Shuffle Puck, but that was never released, <laughs> was it? I'm not familiar with that one. I like Dualtris. Hey, that's the answer I'm looking for. And do you know who created Dualtris, either the, the company or the individual? No. Well, that would be Steve Chang, or it could be Steve Chiang. It's C-H-I-A-N-G. I was looking through Game Informer magazine the other day, and there was an interview with somebody who happens to share his name. I thought that was interesting because Game Informer is about video games, of course, and the Steve Chang that we know created Dualtris. And so I keep reading the article, and in the right column as a sidebar, there is a timeline of the person's Corporate history. They do this every month in Game Informer, show the person's evolution through video game industry. And this guy is the Steve Chiang who created Dualtris because it attributes the paint program that he made for the Apple IIgs, Dream Graphics, as one of his accomplishments. He developed it in 1990, published it in 92. And the reason he's being interviewed in this article is not because he created Dualtris, which is awesome, but because his current role is as president of games at Zynga. Oh, wow. Yeah, the company that made Farmville is now being headed by an Apple II user. Wow. Maybe he should make some uh, some retro software for us. I know. I want to play Dualtrisville. Exactly. You can you can grow little Tetris pieces and then throw <laughs> them into the game or something. But when I saw that, I went back into my Apple IIgs. I booted up Dualtris, and it, sure enough, that game is shareware. 
And it says, if you want to own this game, send $15 to me at this Iowa City address or send me $20 and I'll send you a boxed limited edition copy of the game. And so now I'm really tempted to write out a check for $15 to Steve Chiang and mail it to him at Zynga, care of president of games. I'll tell you what, I'll chip in five bucks if you do. Let's see what happens. <laughs> well, you know what? Brian Peachy, who's been on the show before, he actually contacted Steve Chiang a year or two ago and asked him if he had any of those limited edition box copies left anymore. I don't know what the outcome of that conversation was, but Steve Chiang apparently has not forgotten that he wrote Dualtris, which is good. He remembers his roots. I need to get in touch with this guy because there are all these Apple II game developers out there who remember their roots and are still making games. John Romero interviewed a ton of them for his keynote speech at Kansas Fest last year. He spoke with Will Wright, Joran Mechner, Bill Budge, a bunch of other people. But Steve Chang, he, he had this one amazing game, but it was only released online. It was never a boxed commercial game, and so I don't think he achieved the fame that those other guys did. And even though he's been making games for many years, including for Electronic Arts, he's now in a mostly corporate role, which is not what we often see. Like Richard Garriott, he's been doing the same thing for 30 years. He's been making RPGs. And going to the space station in between, right? There, he might have gone on a few trips here and there. That's true. <laughs> but mostly, I mean, and obviously there's a corporate aspect to what he does now, but still he's got his hand in the game. You know, you don't often see people getting promoted as high up as president of games when they started with the Apple II. Very true. Well, I think, you know, sometimes um, people get into the management side of the business and it looks like he, he did that pretty well. I, went, I wonder if maybe, you know, he just didn't make enough money with, the, uh, with Dualtris and decided he had, to, he had to go into the corporate world. That's true. I'm sure he's getting paid a lot more as a president than he would as a developer. I hope he's happy there. I hope he doesn't miss his Apple II background too much. I wonder if he has an Apple II in his office. He might. We'll have to go and find out. I'll just, you know, schedule an appointment with his secretary. Yeah, I'm sure he'll, you should get him on the show. Yeah, I'm sure the president of Zynga has nothing better to do. All right, let's talk about Ars Technica. We've got a pop-up Apple Museum gallery. We talked about DCF Southeast, you and I and our guest, and we wondered why we hadn't seen any galleries or, or photos or anything of the event itself. And within hours of us wrapping up that recording, I found the Ars Technica pop-up Apple Museum gallery. Most of the pictures are of the gallery itself. There are, it looks like, a couple of photos of the vendor area um, and the other event goings on, but if you want a good look at the pop-up museum, these pictures are great. makes me wish that I had been able to get down there. And it's also worth noting that the pop-up museum made another appearance sh shortly after VCF closed on May 18th and is scheduled to make a third appearance on June 8th. So if you're down in that area of the country, you still have another chance to see the museum if you missed it the first time. Yeah, this is a very professional-looking museum that they have set up, more than I was expecting. I'm scrolling through the pictures. I've seen over two dozen now. I don't see where it actually says how many photos there are. And I don't see captions for the photos either, so I don't necessarily know what I'm looking at each time. But the photos, are, as you said, are very high quality, and this is a, a nice event. It's really nice. They have some, uh, some prototype stuff, too, it looks like. I'm not surprised. Lon, do you go to any events like VCF? You know, I, I, I haven't. I, I would love to at some point go to something because <laughs> uh, I'm at that point where I think I'm ready to actually interact with others uh, who share this passion. So one of these days I will get out to something for sure. Because VCF East used to be held in Burlington, Massachusetts, which isn't far from you. Now it's held in Wall Township, New Jersey, which is closer to you than it is to me. Yeah, I could probably get on a train and find my way over there. Well, I think you should do that. Or Kansas Fest. 
yeah, one of these days we'll figure out. We'll find something uh, that the whole family can go do, and I'll and I'll hang out at Kansas Fest. We'll see what happens. Kansas Fest sounds like probably a better fit for you because I haven't heard you mentioning any interest in Sinclairs or other retro computers. You're solely an Apple II guy. Yeah, mostly. I have um, uh, an old, a couple of old Macs, um, but mostly Apple stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's funny. The you know the and this may speak to our topic on the Apple One. You know, I, my first PC was a 386, and and it was a you know generic thing, but it didn't really have any any you know real. Um, sentimental value to me and and the apples for some reason just have always stuck i also have a couple of newtons also um i i had newtons and then i sold newtons and then i reacquired newtons <laughs> later so and i have an e-made and a a, a a newton 2000 uh, sitting here on my desk with me I don't, I don't use them much but uh it is fun to have so all those old apples all your old video game systems your bbs despite the addition of an infant to your household you still have room for all these toys my wife and I bought like this, you know, we're out in Connecticut, so we got a lot of, a lot of open air here, big houses. So we, we got a house that has a huge basement, which I'm uh, halfway into. I'm going I'm to get kicked out of my home office uh, when, when child number two arrives. So I only have a couple more years here. <laughs> then, then I'm downstairs in the basement, but we have plenty of room down there. Well, you can always move to a bigger house too. Yeah, I could do that as well. But uh, the basement actually is kind of cool. I may, I may finish it and do a, a real uh, man lair down there or something, or a geeky man lair. <laughs> Well, let's talk about Mr. Steve Wozniak. He gave a commencement speech at Berkeley recently. Now, the article I'm looking at from the Mercury News says that Steve Wozniak gave in his speech two equations that even a fifth grader could understand, which is appropriate because I, if I recall correctly, Steve Wozniak used to teach fifth grade. The equations are happiness equals smiles minus frowns and happiness equals F cubed. And those three F's, or so maybe that'd be three F, I'm not sure. But F cubed, he says, is food, fun, and friends, which I think is a commercial for McDonald's. But anyway, that's how you get happy. You smile and you have food, fun, and friends. That was the lesson he taught the graduating seniors of UC Berkeley. And in his case, it's those plus inventing a computer that made him uh, oodles of money. <laughs> There's that, you know, and getting on Dancing with the Stars and getting to dance with beautiful women. He's had, he's had quite the life. He has, and... It's interesting how in the last five years, it's, it feels like his star has risen in the last five years. I feel like up until he got on Dancing with the Stars, he was just sort of a historical footnote. And now you see him everywhere. He's giving speeches and he is appearing on TV shows and he's doing Segway water polo or something. I don't know. Well, I read the book. Did you read his, his autobiography, I Was? I did. It was. I, I thought it was excellent. And I, I was in some ways, kind of his first real step out there to let people know that there was another Steve involved with the, with the company. And he's a real genius, this guy. I mean, it's just amazing when you read about how he was designing these circuits on paper with pencil because he didn't have the parts, but he, he could envision how they would work. And when he finally got the parts, the things tended to work that way. It was pretty, uh, pretty remarkable. I remember there was an episode of the G4 show, Icons, that was about the Apple II. I showed it to my high school students back when I was a teacher of that level. And they had never even heard of Steve Wozniak. But when they saw him speak about how he introduced color to personal computers, they were just astounded. And they're like, they actually realized from just Woz's brief description what a monumental change this was in personal computing and how easily Steve Wozniak made it. Yeah, he just, just in his head, just came out. And, and it, it seemed like it he would have these these technical revelations without a lot of effort. You know, they just kind of popped up on the surface. He wrote them down and made it happen. It's uh, He made it look easy. Is anything that easy anymore? 
Waz did leave the students with a puzzle to solve at the end of his speech, now that finals are over. He asked, is there ever a full moon on the same day everywhere on Earth? Think about that on your own time. Hmm. I'm sure there is an answer to that, and I just don't want to think about it. <laughs> well, yeah, we I think we had mentioned in a previous episode that he was going to give this speech, and I was debating whether or not it was just going to be the same old tropes. Sounds like he actually did have some original things to say. I don't know how insightful they were. I mean, commencement speech is a very difficult genre to prove yourself in because most seniors aren't going to remember what these guys said and most of what they say is just hackneyed cliches anyway and so you know Waz's formula of food fun and friends i don't know how many of his audience members are going to hear remember that in 30 years but you know at least he said something that we haven't heard at kansas fest and what's this about Waz's old house Yes, Waz's old house is for sale again. The house at 300 Santa Rosa Drive in Los Gatos, California, originally went on sale late last year for $4.5 million. Uh, didn't sell. It's on sale again, slightly reduced for $4.4 million. Um, now, if you're thinking about buying this home, um, you're not buying it directly from Waz. There have been a couple of owners between uh, when he moved out and whoever gets this property next but all of the personal touches and custom configurations that he had done to, to the home apparently are still there. So maybe a bit of his spirit still remains. And you can buy it for like six or seven Apple Ones. <laughs> I bet if the house came with an Apple One, there's somebody who would buy it just for that. That could be the, you know, he's got them. He could, he could well, I guess it's not his house now, but uh, he could probably do that. <laughs> Bring one over. But it says it has six bedrooms, seven bathrooms. Wait a minute, more bathrooms than bedrooms? Really? Is that necessary? I think it is. Okay. It also has a pool with a waterfall, an indoor play area for kids, and even a koi pond. I'm quoting from a CNET article here. And then there is a slideshow at redfin.com, which I believe is the realtor handling the transaction, showing all the different aspects of the house. Beautiful back porch. Let's see. With a beautiful view of the mountains. My goodness. This is quite the house. Waz had the house built in 1986 and sold it in October of 2004. That's a nice property. And it last changed hands in 2009 and, of course, is for sale now. You said it was built in the 80s? Yes. It actually looks rather modern to me, although not that I would know much about you know, house design. It's a nice place. <laughs> I think that's where we should hold the next Kansas Fest. <laughs> I'm all for it. It has more bathrooms than Rockhurst. <laughs> Maybe it won't be long before Waz sells the house he's in now, because it sounds like he wants to move out of country. Yes, Waz has started the process to immigrate to Australia. Apparently he started this late last year, and this is not a simple process. It takes a long time. I think you have to live there a significant amount of time for at least five years before you can get, get that. And I know that uh, he talked about his how his uh, speaking and travel schedule would make it difficult to immigrate there immediately, but he is in the process of having this done. But how would he be able to continue his travel and speaking schedule if he lives on the other side of the world? I think most of the places he's speaking nowadays are more central to California. Well, I imagine that he would retire. And not do speeches anymore? Well, maybe local ones. Like in Sydney and Brisbane and... Oh, he can go to that Oz K-Fest that's being organized this summer. Oh, there you go. Now, I don't know how this is going to affect his signed by Waz business, but uh, if you are hoping to get something signed by Waz and you live here in the United States, the clock is ticking. Slowly, but it's ticking. Back in October of last year, one of the reasons Waz gave for wanting to move to Australia is because they have really good broadband. 
Well, for a guy like him, that might be reason enough. You know, it's ironic that Waz would put so much emphasis on personal broadband because his current California house doesn't even have broadband. He doesn't. He says that he has so many cell phones, he just goes mobile. He doesn't need a <laughs> landline. So I don't understand why he would go to Australia for something that he doesn't even use in America. Maybe he's so angry that he can't get broadband at his house that he's leaving the entire country. <laughs> I don't know that he can't get broadband. He just doesn't. But Australia is a beautiful country. I spent a couple months there when I was an undergraduate. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't blame him for wanting to go there. I'm sure he's been there, and that's why he knows that he wants to live there. But I wonder what part he would settle in, presumably the East Coast, uh, except for Perth. There isn't much on the West, and there's certainly nothing in the middle. But Australia is as big as the United States in landmass, and it has, like, 15 million people or something in four area codes. It's ridiculous how unpopulated it is, but people forget that it is massive. So you can build a house with, like, 12 bathrooms then. <laughs> That's right. Wow. One for every hour of the day, as long yeah. as you're not in military time. <laughs> well, hey, I guess if you have that much money, where does he get all his money from? I mean, he he's still technically an Apple employee, but I doubt they pay him much. Is this all coming from, is it Fusion IO, the company he works for now? Or is he just living off Apple stocks? He's probably living off of Apple stocks. I'm sure he's getting, you know, he probably had some deal where he gets some some portion of revenue, I would imagine. Um, but uh, yeah, his his stock value has gone up, I'm sure, significantly since uh, since the starting days. So I'm sure he had plenty of uh, plenty of options <laughs> that he exercised or is about to exercise. And he would have more stock if he hadn't given so much of it away back on that day in the 1980s when. Steve what, what, didn't give it away. Yeah. yeah, that's that's what happened. Well, Steve Jobs said, no, no stock for you. And Steve Waters said, fine, you can have mine. Yeah, right. He gave away some of it. And uh, he's, you know, and that was what's interesting is I, I think um, none of this would have happened had the two Steves not been together, mainly because I think Waz was ready to just give away the plans to this computer to everyone in the club. And he was just really proud of what he what he had built. Didn't the Apple One come with schematics? I think so, but I, I think there was, um, pri you know, all the all the proprietary stuff that that I think went on in the ROMs and whatnot. I I, uh, I remember reading somewhere about it where when Steve Jobs heard that Wozniak was going to go just bring this to the to the computer club. I think uh, that's when the business idea got got started. After they were done making blue boxes for the phones, of course. And I imagine Woz does pretty well with his speaker fees too. Yeah, he spoke at a friend of mine. A friend of mine works for a company that had him come and speak, and I, I would imagine he wasn't cheap. Yeah, in fact, if you want to book him, you can go to newleafspeakers.com. His price isn't listed there, but all of the stuff that they require from you if you want him to come is laid out. So we were pretty lucky that we were able to get him to come to KFest back in 03. Yeah, looks like it. You know, I remember actually last fall when I was on the Kansas Fest committee and we were talking about who we should get for our next keynote speaker. One idea that I did not put forth to the committee and kept to myself, therefore I do not consider myself to be breaking committee confidence by sharing this, was Matthew Broderick, because this year is the 30th anniversary of War Games. I thought that'd be really cool. That would be cool. Because there was an Apple II inside the Whopper machine, if I recall correctly. And a person to operate it. That's right. <laughs> Unfortunately, the speaker fees I found listed for Mr. Broderick were six digits. Or an Apple One. Right. Or a sixth of an Apple One, actually. What's funny about about this uh, war games thing is that my my grandmother, uh, may she rest in peace. Um, when I had just gotten my modem for my Apple 2GS, she had come up to my room or something and asked what I was doing. I said, "Oh, I'm on my modem." She goes, "You better turn that off. You'll get arrested." <laughs> she had seen war games. 
I think she must have, or or the aura of of war games and and hackers, and that the only thing you could possibly do with a modem is is commit uh, you know crimes against uh, the state. <laughs> so she was uh, she was quite concerned for my uh, my well being. Well, that was very thoughtful of her. Okay, so Waz is also listed on BigSpeak.com, and his speaker's fee range is listed as over forty thousand dollars. Wow, that's less than half of Matthew Broderick. Well, it could be anything over forty thousand. They have speakers by budget, and they basically they'll show you the fees like seventy five hundred and under, seventy five to ten thousand, ten thousand to twenty, twenty to forty, and then forty and up. Wow. We should put our names on there and just see what we can get. <laughs> I don't know that I want to be evaluated in that way. <laughs> I would have to pay people to let me speak to them. <laughs> I'd probably get on the version of Priceline for speakers. Yeah. <laughs> Name your budget and see who you get. Yeah, right, right. You don't know who you're getting, but you, you get me. <laughs> Mike Mahu now? Yeah. Aw. All right, let's start wrapping up this news section. We got three more items on here, I believe. One comes from, well, this is pretty trivial, so why say it for last? Juice GS. We shipped an issue back in March, which we never mentioned on the show, not formally, so there's that. But really, the big thing I want to use this uh, totally biased opportunity to represent is that Juice GS now has presences on Facebook, Google, and to a lesser extent, LinkedIn. Juice GS has gone social. Not socialist, just social. On my In my last editorial for GS, I asked, how can we get the nearly 700 members of the Apple II Enthusiast group on Facebook to become subscribers? And writing that editorial sort of answered my own question, well, we should go to them. And I don't know if we're necessarily going to be driving business with this, but it's just a fun way to engage our users, too. Right now, we're posting three or four times a week quotes by people that we have interviewed in GS over the years, people like Dan Muse, Bob Bishop... Alan Flater and Tony Diaz, and just little excerpts of, or pull quotes, if you will, of things they've said that really represent the Apple II, the spirit of their users and the community. And it's a neat way to highlight some of the amazing transactions that occur in these interviews and the things that were getting documented by speaking to these people while they're still around. If anybody wants to like us or fan us or friend us on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash juice.gs. If you want to go on Google+, there really aren't short URLs over there, so just do a search for JuiceGS, and when you see the smiling apple wearing the shades, that's us. And then on LinkedIn, if you've ever worked for us, you can list us as a past employer, because right now we only have two employees on LinkedIn. And uh, we're not hiring, but we are always accepting pitches and submissions from the community. All right, speaking of Facebook, David Schmenk has done it again. A while back, he posted a link on Facebook, a video, in fact, of how he had converted a quick cam to capture black and white visual data and display it on the Apple II. And now he's uploaded a video with his latest project. This is one that you'll really appreciate, Lon. Have you seen this post? I did. I watched it, uh, you know, just from the show notes. I took a look at it today, and and this guy's a genius. <laughs> There's a couple things he's got going here, um, but uh, th- this one, I guess he's got an Apple IIc that um, he's been able to interface with a Raspberry Pi. So the 2C is essentially acting as the keyboard for the Pi, and uh, it's doing all the input and output, and, and he's got it out running out to a, a 2C monitor. So he's running a, uh emulator uh, on the Pi and, and operating everything through the 2C, including the mouse. He's like an old Apple mouse, too. It's pretty... Uh, pretty impressive to watch that because it was kind of neat to see him uh, leave applesoft basic and then just uh, boot up gsos and all of a sudden there's this 2gs running in like a 2c body it was pretty wild so um speaks to the 
to really how versatile these Raspberry Pis are, and they're so inexpensive. And I think you know we're seeing so much with the Raspberry. You know, there there there's some great interviews with the the folks that started that project, the Raspberry Pi project, and they were really hoping to get back to a day of of how the retro computing scene was, which was a lot of experimentation, a lot of hobbyists, and a lot of poking around and you know, hacking at, at a very open platform. And uh, it's it's really turning into that. And now it's neat to see all this retro stuff, you know, with my BBS and this guy's project and everyone else's stuff, linking the retro hardware to this new piece of enthusiast hardware. So it's it's an exciting time. By the way, I just got a notification that I have a new liker on Facebook. Would that be me? <laughs> it would. Thanks, Lon. I'm multitasking. Indeed, indeed. You'll see one on Google Plus too. Oh my goodness, you're everywhere. You are everywhere, by the way. Did you know that? You know, you have to be on, you know, omnipresent in this day and age. <laughs> it was not hard to get a hold of you to invite you on the show. Yeah, you've, you've, you found your way in. <laughs> That's so funny. The one thing I don't publish is my email address, but it, it, it can be found. I used to have a, a website at lonsybin.com, and I just have that link to my Google Plus page now. Right. That's what surprised me was that it just redirected. Did you not like having your own website? It was a pain to maintain it. And, you know, I, 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 I get into this thing where, you know, you don't get a lot of traffic to your own website. So, you know, I do get a lot of traffic on my Facebook stuff from all my friends and everything. And, and I found like Facebook to be the place where I communicate with people I, I know or kind of know. And Google Plus is where I communicate with people that I don't necessarily know in person, but share my passions. And, and, uh, and that's how I, you know, I, I like to differentiate the communication. But Google Plus, I, I really like the platform. I've always liked the platform. And I think I like anything where the geeks go to it first. And, yes. uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like, uh, this is a bad joke, but it's kind of like the internet before AOL showed up, right? Um, remember AOL led everybody on the internet in the, the early 90s and everything went to hell after that. But Facebook is essentially AOL of today. It, it is in many ways. And Google Plus, I, you know, I, I found the quality of the conversations to be really unique there. And um, it's a great way to, to connect with other people. And, and my podcast behind the video, we, we uh, do a lot of it through Google Plus, including we record on the Hangout thing. So uh, we don't go through all the, uh, the high-end production that you guys do, um, but we, we found that the, the Hangout is good enough. And uh, we, we do it on there and interact with our audience through that. So you consider your G Plus profile to be sort of your online hub of all yeah. your presences? I think so, because it, it links to everything. So it, it works out pretty well. And I found too, like with Facebook, I really, you know, I've been using it more to connect with friends and family and, you know, really do a lot of my personal branding, if you will, um, through, through Google+. Yeah, I made a vow to myself last year to start using G+, more, because every time I do, I never regret it. I get such better responses on G+. It's a really neat place. And, it, and I think it's growing. I think it needs to figure out what it is, but... At the same time, it's um, it, you know, I've, I found it to be a great place just to have my homepage be centered. So mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's worked out great. Yeah, it turns two years old this summer. Really? It's wow. been around that long already. Time flies. It does. Is Orkut still around? Wasn't that G- uh, Google's first attempt at social networking? Yeah, that's still around. In fact, it's big overseas. I think um, Iran and Brazil are, are really big places for Orkut. And, yeah, uh, definitely Brazil. That's actually one of the reasons I stopped using Orkut, simply because I don't speak Spanish. Yeah, I had the same issue as I, I was just getting, you know, constantly barraged people from Brazil, which was great, but I had to keep running the uh, the Babel thing, <laughs> the Google <laughs> Translator to to talk with them. It was funny on on um on Orchid, I had just was messing around and I I noticed I'm on the local Rotary Club here and I, I noticed there was no Rotary um group on Orchid, so I just created it. And it it's been it's huge now and I can't talk to anybody on it. <laughs> <laughs> so, they don't speak your language no no but uh it was, it's it's fun to see that something i started it will live on so 
All right. And last but not least, unless there are any other last-minute additions to our spreadsheet, we have an item from Mr. Charles Mangan. We've discussed him on the show before. He is the mad scientist responsible for putting a Mac Mini inside a Disk 2 floppy drive, among other projects. I think he also put a Mac Mini inside a 2C. So instead of will it blend, it's more like will it fit with a Mac Mini. He is working on a USB keyboard interface for the Apple II. I think this might be specifically for the 2E. I don't remember the details. But he put a picture of a modern USB keyboard working on an Apple II. And he has typed in a brief Apple II basic program to demonstrate that it works, just like David Schmenk did with his Raspberry Pi. And so he will be attending his very first Kansas Fest in just a month or two. And he'll be selling these at the vendor fair. At least he hopes to have them ready for production and sale at the event. And Ken, looking at your post here, it says, uh, shut up and take my money. So I think you're going to be one of his first customers. <laughs> that is absolutely correct. And for anybody who thinks that I generally make a habit of going around the internet and telling people to shut up, uh, this is an internet meme. I was quoting Fry from Futurama. And I've given several presentations at Kansas Fest about internet memes. So this is consistent behavior for me. I, I don't insult people using my own words. I use other people's words. Well, I think too, if you're saying shut up and then following that would take my money, then it kind of, you know, the, I, I would not be insulted if you're like, <laughs> give me, give me money to shut up. <laughs> well, I would hope so. But somebody else commented, wow, Ken, that is so unlike you. And I don't know if he meant it was unlike me to quote an internet meme or it was unlike me to support an Apple II developer, either whatever way I chose to interpret that comment, I couldn't figure out a way that wasn't dead wrong. So, yes, I am trying to be polite and supportive. And I think Charles Mangan took it that way because he immediately said, why, yes, I will take your money. Thank you. I don't know how much these are going to sell for. Since it's not an expansion card like a Transwarp or an Ethernet or a CFFA, which costs in the hundreds of dollars, this is just an adapter. I don't mean to trivialize the significance of this. Obviously, I do want one. But I would hope that it would sell for, say, sub $50. Does that sound reasonable? Sure. You know what's funny? I found an eBay sale where, and again, I'm I'm using mostly my 2GS for my my regular Apple II computing. The BBS is kind of occupying the 2E, um, but I I got a bunch of keyboards in reserve in my closet, so I'm I'm good for a while. <laughs> and plus, they click. Yes, always important. Well, we do have one or two more items because that brings us to our Jason Scott uh, segment of the Open Apple Podcast. Ding. Jason Scott has announced that he is dropping international shipping on his documentaries. No! Yeah, I'm afraid so. I guess the uh, the recent price increases at the United States Postal Service have driven him out of that business. He also announced that he is all out of the coin feely for his Get Lamp documentary. And finally, he's announced new lower prices on his documentaries across the board. So if you've been waiting for them to come down in price, now's the time to grab your copy. JuiceGS was also impacted by the recent hike in postage costs, and it didn't affect our domestic or even Canada and Mexico subscribers too much, but the international subscribers, I'm paying significantly more to mail it to them, so I don't blame Jason for doing this. And it sounds like it's not just the price, but also the logistics, where he now has to fill out a rather complicated form, much more so than he did before. And so it just slows him down, and he says... My inbox is filled, bursting with people asking me in the role I play at the Internet Archive and Archive team to help them with projects and research, attend conferences, provide consulting, and save materials both physical and digital. That's what needs me. Being the world's worst Amazon seller is not the best use of me. 
he ends his blog post by saying, please forgive me, which is almost uncharacteristic of Jason. He is not one to uh, suffer regrets, seemingly, but this is just something that is necessary, and he regrets it, but there's really no good alternative. And the unfortunate thing for him, too, is that he hasn't been able to find a, a good digital distribution mechanism either. And I think that's been frustrating him. I know he's he's responded in the past as to why he doesn't make these available through streaming services. And it's just because for someone like him with a very niche kind of um, audience, it, he can't make enough off the, the low amount of royalties that he might get from those streams. Jason was a guest speaker in my undergraduate course that I taught this past semester. One of the things he said is that the future documentaries he's producing, the formats are basically going to move in the two extremes. Get Lamp and BBS sort of existed in the middle, where it's a premium package, you spend 40 to 50 bucks on it, and you get some nice stuff with it. And that was pretty much the only way you could get it. He thinks his future projects, if you want the physical product, you're going to spend 70 to $80 and get a ton of really cool stuff with it that you won't get anywhere else. Or you'll be able to get it online through some sort of a digital distribution. So there will be those two options at either end and nothing really much in the middle. So this cessation of feely coins and international shipping, I think those are both symptoms of the larger issue that he's addressing by moving in those directions. I did back his Kickstarter that he's got for his three new documentaries that he's working on. He's got um, one on the 6502 uh, chip and the art of assembly language programming. Uh, he's got one called Tape, which is about the medium of tape, uh, the actual tapes that we used to use for backup and other things, and one on arcades, which will be about video arcades and, and uh, you know just some of the immense things we, they had in the 80s and 90s uh, regarding that. And that was, uh, was like a fun project, so I was really happy to back it um, because I've uh, really been a fan of his work. And actually, a brief aside here, Jason also edited... Going Cardboard, which is a documentary about board games, which was directed by Lorian Green, who Andy Malloy and I became friends with this past winter. We were able to visit her house and see the room that used to host all the board games and has now been adapted to her new hobby of pinball. And she is now the producer on an upcoming documentary all about pinball called Shoot Again. So we will have a link to that Facebook page in our show notes. It's not an Apple II topic, but... You'll see how I trace the path from Jason to Pinball. And I'm a big fan of Lorian's work and any opportunity that I can get to support hers, just like Jason Scott. They've both demonstrated their value as documentarians, and I want to see more work come from both of them. 6502, Get Lamp, Tape. And also, I think Jason just came out with a DEF CON documentary as well. He, he did, and I'm looking forward to seeing that. Is it available? I don't know if it's ready yet, but I think he said he just finished it. Well, we'll have to take a look for that. And he's been archiving like all sorts of stuff. He's been doing those. Uh, remember those those shareware CDs that you used to get back in the pre-internet days. Yep. So he he's pretty much archived all of them. <laughs> so, all of them. <laughs> not just a few, all of them. Uh, and I think there's probably some Apple stuff in there too. It might be worth uh, scrounging around the internet archive and seeing what he's got. Well, you know, I have the hard drive that I use to run my BBS, and I asked him once do you want me to send you disk images of all my download libraries, the file libraries that I made available to all my callers? And he said, Ken, you don't even have to ask, just send it to me. Yeah, he loves whatever you got, send it to him. I, I found, of all things, remember the, the quick format, the, the QWK? Do you ever play with those? Um, this is a way you could download um, all of your messages from a bulletin board system and work on them offline and then re-upload them. Oh, yeah, that does ring a bell. 
Yeah, it was uh, it was kind of like towards the end of my BBS days when I started doing that because it was a way to um, so my sister wouldn't complain I was tying up the phone line because I couldn't call I didn't usually like to call out on my BBS line and prevent callers from getting in so so I used to download quick packets and I found one which was awesome it was a real snapshot in time of. Uh, one of my local BBS systems and a and a really active uh, group of echoes at the time. And I uh, sent Jason a note and I said, Hey, I found this quick packet. Do you want it? He's like, Oh, hell yeah. And, you know, and he added it to the archive. There's a few on there and you can download a client and kind of get these little snapshots of BBS history. It's pretty cool. I did a story for computer world magazine a couple of years ago, all about CompuServe, Genie, Delphi and Prodigy. I needed some art to go with it. So I booted up my, genie client for the apple 2gs which is called jasmine i'm not sure it ever actually came out of beta but i worked uh but i contacted the developer and also the current or at the time current owner of syndicom so those being richard bennett and eric shepherd respectively and asked is it okay if i share a screenshot of this and they said sure so i took a screenshot of it put it in the story as you know here's what genie looked like back in the day and it has my login name my login name was actually ken.gagney but for some reason, this program only let me fit in uh, like eight characters, and I so I couldn't fit in Ken.Gagney. So I just typed K.Gagney, and I put that in the story. And apparently, whoever maintains the Wikipedia page for Genie didn't have any art of Genie, so they grabbed this photo from my Computer World story. Now it's on Wikipedia as like the representation of Genie. Oh, yeah, Genie. look at that. <laughs> I'm like, actually, guys, that's that wasn't my username, and this is a program that probably never came out, and it was only for the Apple II GS. But if that's what you think Genie was, then go for it. Yeah, I remember it being a lot more text oriented than that. Well, Genie actually, it's it capitalized on online gaming in a way that no other online service did in the '90s. It was ridiculous how diverse their game offering, their game library was. So there were a lot of games that you could play, and some of them were very visual, but as far as actual interacting with the round tables, the chat areas, the file libraries, you're right. That was almost entirely a command line interface. So it's kind of funny that somebody thinks this is what Genie was. And I, I kind of feel like letting them use that photo, besides potentially violating co Computer World's copyright, is also sort of misleading because that's not what Genie was. And that wasn't my username. <laughs> We should go in and change that Wikipedia article. I actually started a talk page for that file saying, is it appropriate that this picture is here? And I don't know if anybody monitors those or if it pings anybody to say, hey, there's a discussion happening, like the person who uploaded it. But nothing's come of that talk, and that was years ago. I'm like, I, I let the computer world editor know, and she didn't really care. So if, if she doesn't care, why should I? Right, let it, let it slide. And, you know, I bet, I bet you this page isn't, isn't too heavily trafficked. There's no way to track that on Wikipedia, is there? No, I don't think so. That would be, I would like to see those analytics, figure out what is the most popular page on Wikipedia. I don't know. That'd be kind of neat if they released that. I'd imagine it would be very interesting. That would be neat. I would be pouring over that data. That'd be ridiculous. And also to see what the most common paths are, like people start reading here and they end up there because that's how my Wikipedia behavior is. I, I just keep clicking and clicking and I have a dozen tabs open before I know it. It's an endless, it's an endless journey. <laughs> right. You know, cause if you click on one link, you got to click on them all. So that ends our Jason Scott segment of the show. And normally now we'd go into eBay, but the show is running long and we only have one real item on eBay this month. So we will get to that momentarily. But first I want to ask Lon, what is your eBay experience like? Do you troll around seeing what's available or do you go more for targeted sniping where you just, you know what you want and you're going to get it? 
targeted sniping. I go for what I want. Um, and actually, I, I, you know, ever once I got the trans warp, I, I was pretty much done. Um, but I've been uh, scouring for some retro gaming stuff and uh, managed to get a few things there. But um, yeah, it's it, it, prices are out of control. So I think uh, it was much better in 2004. And I'm glad I, I got a bulk of the hardware for my GS at that point because it, it's gotten a lot uh, more expensive since then. But I do keep a, a search for applied engineering. I, I used to love their stuff you know, just seeing what might be available that I don't have. But uh, so far I haven't found anything else that I wanted to get. Do you sell anything on eBay? Uh, I do, but you know what? Like I, I regret selling stuff in the past because I always found myself wanting it back like a decade later. So now I just hoard hardware. <laughs> uh, no, I get it. I'm exactly the same way with video games. When I was a kid, my dad, when he got me the 8-bit Nintendo, he got rid of the Atari 2600. Right, And I've regretted it ever since. So now I have never in my life given away or sold a single video game or a system. And now I own 18 systems and over a thousand games. Exactly. Just, just toward it. And, and cause it's, right. it's just something you don't want to part with or, you know, and, and it's funny what you think doesn't have value. And, you know, a lot of times too, like I'm not, you know, it's not even value monetarily. It's just, it's just value personally, you know, and, and like the Newton thing, I was really a big Newton geek when it first came out. I was like, uh, senior in high school and, and just loved that thing. And, uh, and when, you know, when time moved on and I needed a new piece of hardware, I needed to part with old ones and I sold both of my Newtons. And a couple of years later I said, oh, I'd like those back. So I bought them back <laughs> some, some other one, some other person's Newton. So exactly. Or in my case, the video games that I hated as a kid, that hatred defines my childhood and I don't want to let go of that. And I want to be able to go back and play those games that I hated because they still suck. Right. And remember why they sucked. So, exactly. You're like, oh, yeah, I remember this game. It's awful. I remember returning Double Dragon for the Nintendo to the store because I was so distraught. It was expensive. It was like a, one of those 50 plus dollar games, if not more. And uh, I was like, wow, this is terrible. So I brought it back to the store. But it was fun to actually play it again. <laughs> Wait, you, you didn't like Double Dragon? Not the Nintendo version. Something about it, I don't know what it was, but maybe I was getting older, but it just wasn't doing it for me. So, I, Admittedly, compared to the arcade, it was pretty bad. Yeah, and I think I saw the arcade version, and I was like, whoa, what did I just get into? So, yeah, those games were expensive. Have you downloaded Double Dragon Neon for Xbox? I haven't, but uh, you know, it, it, we'll see how, uh, how the rest of the summer goes here if we're not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> With that kid, you're not going anywhere. Exactly. All righty. So we have a rare 1985 Vac Plus once owned by Waz, or so says the headline on this item. Tell us about it, Mike. I'm friends with Waz on Facebook, which is not a big deal because it'll accept anybody's friend request. But I've, I've found that if you send him, if you want to ask him a question and it's a simple one that he can answer in a sentence or two, he'll usually respond. So I stumbled across this rare 1985 Mac Plus once owned by Waz. It was listed for $100, and there's a story here at the bottom about how uh, he brought he the the seller bought this from the bro the brother of Steve Woz who uh, Wozniak and apparently Steve engraved the front of it and if you look there's a photograph uh, of the Mac Plus emblem uh, on the front with a very crude Dremeled Woz signature which sounds like another Apple IIe that we talked about recently so I was kind of skeptical and I sent Woz a message was this really your Mac Plus and I sent him a link and he wrote back a few minutes later I can't say to tell you the truth it sounds really fishy I'm not even sure I ever owned that model so hmm. that shuts that down doesn't it Yeah I would say that this is a warning for people wanting to buy this thing but it already sold for 100 bucks it looks like there were there was only one bidder who bid twice on it Yeah I mean the signature looks like Woz's signature on the 2GS but that would not be hard to fake because you have so many examples to work off. 
and I know that, that Waz wasn't as concerned with elegant design and appearance as, as Jobs was, but I still don't know that he would just dremel his name into, into a computer case. <laughs> yeah, right. It sounds like this might not even have been his machine from the descriptions. I don't think the seller is actually saying this was Steve's computer. He just says, I bought it off Steve's brother. Steve Wozniak had several machines like this one. His brother convinced him to engrave his name on this one. Well, and I would agree with you, except that the title is Once Owned by the Woz. Granted, you're right. The headline is rather misleading. It was owned by a Woz, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, in that case, it's entirely true. We can be specific here. Maybe Wozniak's brother engraved Woz on the front of that. You know what's funny? I, I I had also interacted with Steve Wozniak briefly on his Facebook page because he, he hadn't been aware of um, Apple II emulators on the Android platform. Oh. So I, I uh, turned him on to, I think it was the uh, Candy Apple or something, whatever whatever it is that runs on the Android platform, and then uh, pointed him at the, uh, uh, the Asimov archive. That was kind of a fun thing to be able to do. Now, I'm on Steve Wozniak's Wikipedia page just trying to find out anything about his family. It doesn't say... Anything about having a brother? Does he? TV Guide has a Steve Wozniak biography that lists a Mark Wozniak as his brother. We never hear about Mark Wozniak. How frustrating that must be to be like, hey, I'm I'm related to somebody famous. I'm somebody too. I think that ends our news and our eBay and our Jason Scott. What else is there, really? And our show. That's right. Lon, do you have any announcements or any secrets you want to share with us or any projects you're going to be putting on the front burner once you get this BBS out of the way? Well, I'm a little busy, so hopefully uh, we'll get the BBS going, and uh, and I hope uh, people listening will check it out and get, get those forums active, because I think it's a neat way to pay uh, pay respect to our to our hardware and our past um, by uh, running through that system. It's um, backed up regularly, so uh, don't feel afraid to do anything. Just don't upload anything, because it crashes the TUI. <laughs> so, wow, okay. Uh, <laughs> either that or the pie. It, yeah, just don't upload files. It'll it'll crash it. Um, but uh, maybe we'll fix that part too. So that'll be our next project after we get to 3.0 on it. Now, why have other Telnet BBSs? There was one running on the Apple II that you mentioned. Why did those shut down? You know, it it it, it takes a little bit of maintenance to keep them up. Um, and I, and you know, up until I got this Raspberry Pi working, you know, a lot of times it required tying up a, a PC to be the interface between the two. So that was what was holding me up. Was like, geez, I don't really want to just dedicate an entire pc to just you know pass uh, serial packets back and forth and uh thankfully uh the, the pi managed to work so it was a, a very cheap solution and uh i could see it being rather cumbersome to have all this extra hardware running for something very ra- relatively simple so that could be why and you know just like the old days of bbs's you know you get into it for a while and then it becomes uh, more of a burden than a, than a fun thing to do but right um so far this has been a lot of fun and and, and i'll tell you what that 2e is stable it, it runs for weeks without crashing unless somebody uploads a file <laughs> and it dies well, I'll tell you, I would be absolutely titillated if I logged into your BBS and saw my door game running. Well, it's not yet, but it will be when we get the upgrade going, because that's, uh, that's our plan. So <laughs> um, you might be called upon. <laughs> I will be your biggest fan. Cool. Well, you will be, because we're going to call you to get it set up. <laughs> Although I'll warn you, I actually did take a look at the source code about a year ago, and I documented nothing, and I have no idea what those variables are anymore. Well, you know, that'll give us another long-term project to, to undertake on this thing. So, oh, boy. Uh, I'm sure Scott will love uh, taking a look at it. Well, my plate's a little full, too, so good luck. <laughs> Pass it all over. We'll figure it out. Wonderful. Well, I will do just that. I, I will open source my AppleSoft Basic program for you. Awesome. <laughs> anyway, Lon, it's been marvelous having you on the show. 
This was a lot of fun. I really uh, enjoyed it. I've been listening to you guys for quite a while, so it's really been fun to talk with you both. Well, we're glad to turn you from a lurker into a caller. Mike, any parting shots? Yeah, thanks for coming out. We had a great time. And we hope to meet you in person at one of these events someday. Absolutely. And we're not far from each other, Ken. So maybe one day we'll uh, we'll meet up in, in the Boston area or something. Well, let's not get too hasty. <laughs> Ken, if I ever make good, well, if when I make good on my threat to storm off the show, uh, I think you should have Lon replace me. I think Lon should replace both of us. I'm good with that, too. <laughs> you, you up for that, Lon? If you, it'll cost you an Apple One. You'll just have six of those present positions on your LinkedIn profile now. Exactly. <laughs> cool. It's been great talking to you. I look forward to meeting you. Absolutely. Thanks a lot for having me on. This has been the Open Apple Podcast. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback by visiting us on the web at www.open-apple.net. I think we had mentioned in a previous episode that he was going to give this speech and I was debating whether or not it was just going to be the same old tropes about, oh, I like to buy Apple IIs and cut them up and use them right there on the spot. And 